Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi and welcome to this episode of Cross Section. It's about 7 past 12 on the 10th of November. Uh, I like to be accurate. I'm Jo Evans and I'm recording today's episode from my flat. And for those of you who've been following my progress, I have finally broken and put some heating on. I'm uh, the Evangelical Alliance officers in King's Cross, uh, North London, and I don't know if the heating's on or not, but it certainly could do with being on if it's not, because it's pretty cold up here. And Danny, you did it again. That's Danny Webster, who <laughs> keeps forgetting to say his name. <laughs> I'm going to start today with an email from a listener who emailed us at cross.section at eauk.org. She said, hi, my name is Lee and I'm a 21 year old Christian living in Belfast. I love the podcast, who wouldn't? And it's really helped me feel more secure and grounded in principles of faith as we navigate difficult political cultures as Christians. I study politics at uni and now work in political lobbying. So I found your conversation on the role of charities and politics to be very interesting. I also feel that policymaking and politics can be a space for good, despite the difficulties, and it ultimately shapes every aspect of our lives. Well, thank you so much, Lee, and anyone else who wants to get in touch, please do. Um, We're so glad to hear that this podcast is helping people. I know that today's guest believes that politics can be a space for good, despite the difficulties. And I'm really pleased to say that we have the MP for Westmoreland and Lonsdale, Tim Farron, with us today. Hi, Tim. How do you do? Lovely to be with you. I, so I just to follow up with the theme, I am in a, a cold upper room in my screen, if that evokes anything to you. I, I hope it does. It's lovely to paint a mental image. So Tim is going to join us today. We've kicked off some of our usual panellists and Tim's going to join us talking about the big news and cultural stories of our week and help us answer the question of what difference does being a follower of Jesus make as we process and talk about these topics. We're also going to spend some time talking about Tim's upcoming book, A Mucky Business, But Tim, the first question I want to ask you is, would you ever consider going on Strictly Come Dancing? No, I don't think so. I've never been asked. I'm not not significantly important enough. I I was invited a few years ago on Celebrity Dancing on Ice, which is kind of like uh, a second (laughs) rate Strictly. And I was asked on Bear Grylls the Island, which is a second rate. I'm a celebrity, so we've established that's the kind of person I'm the level I'm I'm second rate celebrity friends. And I said yeah, to both of them, because I've got a job to do. I mean, I'm not it's it's not a case of whether I'd fancy it or not. It's that it's the displacement of time. I'm meant to serve the people of Westman Alonso, not faff about on an island. I, I did get asked on uh, Celebrity Mastermind, which only took two hours of my time in Manchester and uh, we raised three grand for a homelessness charity in Kendall. So I thought that was legit. <laughs> by the way I would (laughs) excellent excellent drop of information there so obviously I'm asking because of man Matt Hancock going into the jungle yesterday so as I said this is Thursday so Wednesday night's episode of I'm a celebrity get me out of here was the first time that Matt Hancock was in the jungle it's also been reported that he's recorded and he's been part of a series that's going to be coming out later of celebrity SAS 
So I, I just, you mentioned him and that speaks to a lot of people's reactions of kind of what is he doing in there? He has a job. He has constituents to look after. So I just, what, what's your, what's your take? What's your heart? What do you think his heart is behind what he's doing? Well, so obviously I don't know. I can't see into the guy. I think that, to be honest with you, I don't think he was a terrible health secretary. I think he was more competent and more committed to the role against him. And, and I think we should, the problem is though, a member of parliament's job is a very busy one uh, and if you know your principal job is to serve your community and not being in it for several weeks on uh, at a time as the money to do it and you you don't give that money to charity the position the electorate's given you to advantage yourself now if i was making a case for matt hancock i suppose i'd probably say you know this is a man who perhaps feels his particular career is coming to an end and then he's looking for other ways of, and I don't think he's going to struggle financially. So, so I, Matt Hancock, yeah, I, Matt I, Hancock, I would be critical of him, but I think he's. Yes, go on. What? Uh, Matt Hancock has uh, tried to justify what he's saying and saying that it's an opportunity for him to connect with people. He's, he's going where the people are, and I, I can only imagine he assumes on the sofa watching him rather than into the jungle. Um, I, he undoubtedly will be seen and heard by more people than any other politician in the next few weeks. So on one level, surely he is right that it's an opportunity to connect with people. I, if you were him in that context, how would you do that? Because I, my view is that he's just being made a laughing stock. I, I've never really watched I'm a Slim to get me out of here. I watched a two minute clip this morning to see what he was doing last night. I can't really imagine he's got a great platform to advance uh, the cause of politics in the UK, but but maybe maybe he'll surprise us. Maybe he will, and I, I think it's yeah, important to keep an open mind. I mean, politicians who've done that before, Nadine Dorries would be one of them, of course has gone on to be a mm. minister afterwards. So, yeah, I don't want to be overly judgmental of the guy. I, I wouldn't do it. I think it's right of his constituents, as many of them, I think, are to be critical of him doing it. Yes, he will connect with a lot of people. So my kids know who Matt Hancock is now. And so maybe he has achieved some of what he, he's, he's set out. I'm just not sure to what end. It all seems very partridge to me, which he doesn't, I mean, yeah. he doesn't mean. Obviously. Now, and so is it a platform that will allow him to do some good in some way? Will it make young people, for example, be interested in politics as a result. I just don't see any of that, if I'm honest with you. I mean, I don't want to mm. knock anybody for being on it, particularly given that I'm not important <laughs> enough to have been asked. So I, I don't want to be, you know, to be overly critical, but I, I, I think on balance he shouldn't have done it. And I think the criticism is justified, but I also don't want to lay into the guy. There are more important things. That's a very honest and compassionate response. So I guess my next question is, when we feel like politics, politicians are acting outrageously, for want of a better word, whether in this sort of way or whether directly in regards to their policies, how, how do we as Christians, how do you as a Christian politician, both hold our leaders to account, you know, speaking truth to power, whilst remaining compassionate and humble? Because I know, you know, I follow you on Twitter, I know that you're not afraid to call people out when when 
your view is that they're not acting in a good way. So I'm just really interested to know how you kind of approach that. Well, I do. I mean, I rebuke myself regularly and feel that I need to confess <laughs> often. Uh, if I, well, I do, and we all should. We have a you know, repentant posture mm, at all times mm. and to be self-reflective. There are times where I think I've been ungracious or I've been a bit too partisan, but I try not to be. Mm. I, as much as I often, I'd like to say always, I often uh, go into the public space, whether it's, you know, virtual or physical, with a, a genuine attempt to be to be gracious and to, to play the ball and not the player. And I think, so what should Mark Christian in politics uh, or Mark us out as is by being gracious, by being patient, by being kind, by being gentle. But we are not called to be soppily neutral, you know, to take the rather mm. radio for sort of thought for the day approach where on the one hand this and the one hand that and just be everybody's worst kind of characterization or caricature of a vicar you know and just be terribly terribly nice we, we are not called to be neutral over wickedness we are not and whilst mm. we must do it in a humble way reflecting on the fact that we too are sinners we should call out and oppose things and people that are wrong and who do wrong whilst always at the same time like i say retaining an awareness of our own inadequacies <laughs> I could give you an example, I think, and obviously, you know, I, I that Boris Johnson personally uh, broke lockdown rules, uh, mm. you know, outraged me like he did lots of other people, acknowledged that, or before any kind of act of serious public contrition, or even when that did come, it had to be dragged out of him. I felt there was a great anger, I, I was deeply angry mm. about that, on behalf of the people who'd made awful, awful sacrifices. My sacrifices were limited compared to many people's as a, you know, just as a kingdom. And I've done the right thing in order to protect the Adams. And then doubled down and kind of mocked us really, you know, thought, assumed it's all just opponents playing politics. I, I was deeply angry about that. And there may be moments I didn't express it well, but I, broadly speaking, government and in all forms of leadership and I think we've seen a lack of it and and it's we're not doing anybody any favors and I don't think we're being good with this is if we go oh well we can see his point everyone at a party didn't they which you know they didn't and if mm. they did they shouldn't mm. and I think we so we, we are right to have a set of outrage that's wrong realizing that we too are sinners maybe we've sinned in different ways but we are sinners thanks Tim and so I guess in this week just gone, we saw Gavin William or Sir Gavin Williamson resign from cabinet after allegations of bullying, which is quite possibly another example of a politician not acting as they should if those allegations are true. And so partly I'd love to know your thoughts on that, but also for the benefit of our listeners, could you perhaps tell us a bit about just the whipping process? Well, if you are a Liberal Democrat, your whipping experience is somewhat different, not not least because there are fewer of us and it's a much more friendly operation. But also, I think oh, there's something David Steele once said. He said that any Liberal who doesn't disagree with at least 10% of Liberal policies isn't really a Liberal. So there is a kind of sense that not that rebellion is encouraged, but it's kind of tolerated to a larger degree. But what I observe is that the whip is actually a piece of paper which tells you what's going on this week and how you're expected to vote if you belong to that particular party. 
the whips are the individuals who are there to try and enforce that. And to be fair, there's a level of pastoral care involved. If you are in a much larger party like Labour or Conservatives, you will have a chief whip and there will be up to a dozen or many more, you know, deputy and junior whips who are there just to basically to do the pastoral care and enforce discipline. And if you are the government of the country, you've got your business to get through Parliament. You need to make sure your folks turn up and vote the right way. So I can completely understand that. But it does sometimes mean that the chief whip or other whips might uh, run out of, you know, should we say pers persuasive tactics um, <laughs> to get someone to do what they want them to do. And so I've certainly heard it said that people will use all sorts of other tactics, which are, uh, you know, bribery, kind of uh, blackmail, even down to serious, uh, you know, bullying. And uh, and I've got some examples of that, but you saw some of it uh, this this week where, you know, Gavin Williamson apparently had arranged for some MPs financial difficulties to go away. And as a result, he therefore owned that MP, he said. We also saw, I suppose, most revealing was the exchanges between Gavin Williamson and Wendy Morton, the former chief whip, over his sense of mm. entitlement, uh, should he be able to attend the Queen's funeral. I think that was just a little window into how people can get high up the ladder and get properly full of themselves. And it's a real, I, I always think that the biggest, you know, we read about awful scandals in the broadsheets and the, in the tabloids. And we think that, you know, that the vices that MPs get up to are all the kind of salacious stuff. I actually think the number one vice that trips up politicians is vanity. Because, you know, there you are, you are someone now, aren't you? And I think we've got to, I, I don't think Gavin Williamson is the only person who thinks like that, but it's pretty ugly when it's exposed. It's a reminder of what God sees when he looks at our mm. heart and we think we're a bit too. You, you've already touched on this, but for, for some people involved in uh, politics in Westminster and other places, there has been a bit of kind of mock, oh, shock, horror. Uh, the chief whips have uh, been using tactics of intimidation. What a surprise. Uh, but... So uh, enforcing party discipline is part of a chief whip's job. But where yeah. then is the line between doing that and not engaging in bullying? And, and how, I, because some of the allegations, if it was in any other workplace or context, you'd be outraged by them. Is, is the whole process just totally outdated or is it an essential part of politics and it just needs to be done a little bit better? Yeah, somewhere in the middle, probably. I think that the, I, I think, I mean, our, our fundamental priority, I think, in a democracy like ours is our, our first allegiance is to our conscience. I'm quoting Edmund Burke now, but our first allegiance to the con conscience and the second is to your constituents. Churchill added the third is to your party. But even if we, we accept the Churchill Amendment to the Burkean thesis, then we're still saying your party is the third one there. Now, you could argue that your conscience and your party are similar views uh, but I, I certainly think i would i would certainly and there are times when my constituents will sometimes be dying and i will regularly write in a very open way in a hopefully conversation with those who support legalization of assisted uh, dying so that is me and if my constituency want to get rid of me because they don't like what my conscience tells me then the next election is their opportunity to do that um, I think the problem is that because of the way the UK elects its parliament, it's incredibly bipolar. And 
because of the electoral system we use, it tends to create artificial And because of that, it means that we don't have a culture of internal debate and negotiation. And whatever you think about them, Tory coalition, we saw the working in public, not behind closed doors. The falling out was done over issues, not personalities, and it was done on camera. So it was far, far, far healthier. And the problem is that when you've got an artificial majority in Parliament, the only way you can sometimes uh, present a unified picture is by people being told to shut up in the in the background. And so I think the system attempts for people to behave the way they do, but bullying is still outrageous. It's not really an excuse, it's just an explanation. And so you spoke about having a divided parliament. One of the questions that was thrown at Matt Hancock last night was, how can you leave Parliament at such a time of instability? To which he replied, oh, Rishi's great. It'll be fine. But I wanted to ask for you, what, what's it been like being in Parliament for the last few months through everything? Well, it's a great question. I often think I feel, obviously, I feel hugely blessed to do a job that I absolutely love, really love it. Serving my community in the lakes is just the best job. And actually, particularly more recent years, since I stepped down as leader, to be able to use what limited profile I've got, and we've established it's not a profile <laughs> to get on I'm a celebrity, you know, as an F-list or Z-list political celebrity, whatever, whatever profile I've got to talk about my faith and to try and help people who are Christians to be encouraged to think about politics wisely, but also to try and get the gospel over to people who might not hear it otherwise. So I think that the, you know, so I feel really blessed to do it. I also feel blessed that I'm, been an MP through so many different eras. So the, the back end of the Blair Brown era, the coalition, which was fascinating, my time as leader and the referendum, which was short but fascinating. Then, of course, we had the Brexit Parliament with Theresa May going into Boris Johnson, which was far more stressful from an MP point of view than where we are now. And we've had the pandemic and now the current set of crises, which is far worse, I would say, for the country. Um, but, you know, I, so for, for me, yes, it does feel visceral. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm questioning ministers in departments that know their jobs better than I do. So I, because I've been on a committee for, I was on the levelling up bill committee for whatever it was, three months. And in that time, we've had seven ministers. <laughs> so I turned out I know the minister's brief better, you know, as do the Tory backbenchers. So it is a time of enormous flux and change. And it's a reminder that leadership matters and uh, humility mm. in leadership matters. And so does wisdom. They do tend to go together. Humility, wisdom, integrity. They are, I think, your three, you know, the legs of a, of a of the leadership stool. And we, uh, we've seen at least one of those missing at any given time for much of the last you know, few months. Hmm. And so I, I know you're not a neutral observer. I'm not asking you to deny your party affiliation. But what do you what do you think has gone wrong? Or what's been the cause of all the turbulence within the Conservative Party over the last 12 months? In, in the end, it's Brexit. In the end, it's the fact that the Conservative Party chose to put emotion ahead of emotion, ahead of pragmatics. And so th- there's no doubt that the majority, well, a very large percentage of Conservative MPs know that Brexit was a disaster, know that the former Brexit that we chose, you know, outside the customs using the single market, has caused the Northern Europe, but they have to pretend that the Emperor's got. So if you are in a place where you have to put your fingers in your ears over expert advice all the time on Europe, then you'll do it on economic policy and you'll be Liz Truss 
and you'll listen to some, you know, nonsense rather than what our experts are telling you and you'll crash the economy. So this is a, a concept. So if, if nothing else, maybe the last few weeks have told us that wise people do listen to experts. And, and, and where do you think we're going over the next two years? Are we going to have an election anytime soon or yeah, when's an election coming? I don't, so I think the next election is probably 2024. The Conservatives might even limp on, how about this for a delight, to January 25, mm. which is the last time they could have the election, which would mean a full-on Christmas election, but which I don't think would be kindly rewarded. So I think it's more likely to be May or June or October, November 2024. I think if Boris Johnson had come back and been Prime Minister again, I genuinely think enough Conservative MPs would have resigned the whip and we might have had an early election because the government would simply collapse. Now, I think turkeys don't vote for yeah. Christmas. Uh, so I don't think Conservative MPs and the Conservative Prime Minister will choose to hold an early election. The one possible, the autumn statement, and if, if it's extremely negative, then you just never know. But I, no, no government calls an election when they think they're going to lose it. And even though at the moment, I mean, there's a long way to go, so I'm not taking anything for granted, but at the moment it looks like the Conservatives are in an irretrievable position. But you always think that something might turn up. And, you know, the, the, I hear Conservative commentators saying to me, oh, maybe this isn't 97, maybe it's 92. Maybe there'll be a, you know, a last-minute comeback and Rishi Sunak can just pull off a surprise victory. And you can never rule that out. But I think, so I, yeah, ele next election is probably 18 months to two years old. So another big story in the news this week has been the protests with Just Stop Oil. It's pretty widely acknowledged that protesting is really annoying. It causes a lot of inconvenience. Yesterday, it was reported that a police officer had been hurt in everything that was going on. Um, but you yourself said, and I, I largely agree with you on, in fact, I definitely agree with you, on your own podcast, A Mucky Business, that we do not, as Christians, we do not have the right to treat global warming as anything less than our greatest earthly threat. So does that mean that as Christians, we should be taking climate change, in fact, more seriously and, and that the stop oil protesters are to be admired? Well, obviously I've got complete sympathy, real sympathy, as somebody who's regular you know, on, on the wrong end of rail cancellations at the moment, people who have been more than inconvenient, you know, people who've missed hospital appointments, funerals and all the rest of it. And I, I think that, so, I mean, I take a slightly liberal Democrat position on all this, which is, I can see both sides. <laughs> but I, I think, that's, uh, and, I, and that's I do, I, you know, people have been slagging off the protesters for being, you know, uh, you know, culture warriors and all the rest of it. I think they're genuine in their beliefs. Mm. I think they think that whatever inconvenience they're causing is nothing compared to the horrific consequences of climate change is whether or not it actually helps to tackle it, I suppose, is the real question. But getting on to the, the issue about climate change, one thing that I'm deeply concerned about and why I do really uh, feel blessed to have the opportunity to talk to Christians about politics is because whatever political colour you choose, and, and, and that's absolutely, you know, absolutely fine, it's kingdom before tribe, I am very keen that we stay out of culture war, or rather we stay above culture war. And, and I think the danger is that for some Christians, I've seen them, I'm going to say duped, and that sounds a bit condescending, but duped into thinking that climate change is, uh, being concerned about it is all part of, you know, wokery. And that, you know, climate, the climate is changing because God wants it to. So what are we going to do about all this? And the reality is that if we believe that 
We don't say that about our moral choices. We know that, you know, if we do wrong individually, we're culpable and we have to make amends. You know, we are saved by grace, we just seek to make amends. The same applies for our impact on the planet. You know, we are, we, we, we don't worship the earth. We're not, we don't buy Gaia theory, but we love the earth and we want to protect the earth for two reasons. A and B, love of our neighbour includes the generations not yet born. And it means we've got to make sure we leave behind them something which isn't worse than what we inherited. So I think we should desperately care about climate change and again, consequence of human activity. And so the, the we Christians should not, you might not agree with everything that people who are climate change protesters believe in. They may believe in other things that you might dismiss as a career. Should not get sucked in, not, not go down the Trump rabbit hole. Don't go down the, the cultural rabbit hole. Mm. If we're being obedient to God and we, and we want to love our neighbour, you should care deeply about climate change. But how, so how does caring about climate change, what should we do as a response to that? Does it justify, if we say that climate change is a really significant threat, does that justify protesters taking action that causes all sorts of other problems? Uh, where, where, where is protest, where does protest go too far? Honestly, I mean, obviously, there, there are times when it does, and the, to be clear, the police have powers to remove protesters and to do so peacefully and to do so without violence. And I think that's, you know, that, so they all make that judgment and they should do. But honestly, it's a, and maybe this is where I would criticise the protesters to a degree, because maybe this is a distraction, because I'll tell you what we do do, or should do, is build shed loads of tidal barrages. And, and, and wind turbines and, uh, and t- tidal energy schemes and do the things that will actually tackle the problem. And the problem is I think politicians who are not doing enough rather enjoy being able to point to some, you know, middle-class protest while they, you know, literally are fiddling while Rome burns. And then to do the, maybe, just maybe, uh, these people chain themselves to gantries are making us esoteric and it's not esoteric you have to miss your mum's funeral I completely get that and I would be beyond furious with those people but I also think that this is such a huge issue let's concentrate on badgering the government to do the right thing rather than badgering a few students who are so, but the, the governments are currently uh, considering greater powers as a public order bill in parliament at the moment how do you get that balance right between uh giving the government powers that they need to have, but also protecting the right to protest in uh, a whole variety of different areas? Well, I think that the, the foundation of the Liberal Party in the UK is very evangelical, very Christian. And it was and essentially born out of the fact that if you were not an Anglican in the UK, and principally that would mean non-conformist evangelical, then your life chances were massively, massively up. You couldn't go to university, you were in all sorts of, you are were, you were very limited in what you could do. Um, but the Liberal Party in its emergence understood that if we don't defend other minorities' rights, why should we depend upon other people uh, expecting them to defend ours? So suddenly the Liberal Party gained the place that atheists and secularists and Catholics and Jewish, and I think we need to remember that day that you may not agree with what somebody does or says in terms of protesting. But as long as it is not violent, just remember, if you don't stand up for them, 
they might come for you next. And we, if you, and any, I would say any old fascist can defend the rights of people who are like them. It takes a proper liberal to defend the rights of people who are not like them. Mm. Tim, there are so many things that we want to ask you. We know that you have limited time, so we're just going to th keep throwing questions at you until you say you've got to go. <laughs> it's like being back on Mastermind, just got to get those quick, quick answers in. So you've got a new book coming out in a week's time, the same title as your podcast, A Mucky Business. Tell us about it and what motivated you to write it. Christian Union at Newcastle University said to me 34 years ago when he found out I was involved in students union politics as well as being in the Christian union was why are you involved in politics Tim as a Christian isn't it a mucky business and my answer to him was rubbish back then and I don't really think I gave it much thought but in the years of all I certainly have and the short answer and so is everything else since the fall and we are not told to be hermits and the real uh, challenge I think as Christians when it comes to politics and the culture as a whole two temptations. One is to blend in, which I think has often been my temptation, and the other is to hide away. And I don't think we're encouraged by it. I know we're not encouraged to do either. So in summary, you know, what I, what I want is Christians to think wisely, biblically about politics. And broad, broadly speaking, do two things. First, don't panic. Don't panic because whatever's happening in the world, we know if we're trusting Jesus, it ends well. It ends well. Okay. <laughs> So don't panic, but secondly, do care. Because Jesus' example and the instructions we get throughout the Bible is to care for people practically, sacrificially, in the place where we have been put. Be a small thing, be a book is about. It tries to engage, necessarily wanting you to, you know, uh, cash in what you're doing now and put on a red, blue or yellow rosette. But just think about politics more. So, so what do you think are some of the challenges that will, uh, that Christians will encounter, both when they start engaging with political issues, but also if they start participating in politics and getting involved? What, what challenges are they going to face? Well, you'll find the same challenges you face anywhere else. One thing we need to remind ourselves and encourage ourselves over, really, is that Christianity is always countercultural in every sense and in every era. And if it's not, something's wrong. So you're going to always rub up against whichever group you're in if you engage with the culture. So people won't understand, you know, things that we think about in terms of being willing to forgive people who've done terrible things. That we belong to uh, the Almighty and we're not there to self-affirm and just be who we want to be. And those, those are radical things that will make us stand out and they will sometimes uh, jar with the people around us. And sometimes you might be, you know, treated poorly as a consequence. I think the thing also to remember is that in the United Kingdom, far more than most countries, and we should celebrate that. And also, when we do come up against stick, and we'll get it if we're Christians, we put our heads above the parapet, we will get it. Uh, whichever party or whichever you know world you're in, what we're told to do when it comes to opposition is to take to turn the other cheek, is to act graciously. It's not to lash out in response. It is to be salt and light and to remember suffering, even the relatively minor suffering of being, you know, disagreed with or maybe marginalised to a degree. We're to consider it pure joy because it's happening to us because we follow Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to assume that most of our listeners have at least a passing memory of some of your more high profile brushes with uh, notoriety and controversy. But 
I, I just wondered whether, on reflection, you think whether you might have avoided some of the challenges and what you might have been able to do differently and what advice you would have for others if they're going to face uh, challenges and questions as they engage in public life. Well, you know, it's obviously, you know, people who are Bible-believing Christians will recognise that God has very clear things to say about our sex lives. And as he does in every single corner of your life, if you are feeling God's not rebuking you about any part of your life, again, you're not listening properly. So, but that is obviously hugely countercultural. So I think, I, I'm sure I could have dealt with it. I know I could have dealt with it much better. In some ways, I find it, I can deal with those questions about issues about sex and sexuality and life issues better for two reasons. A, experience and wisdom is a great thing. But secondly, I'm not the leader and I'm not the party's main advertising board and therefore having to get across the party's message in a 90 second slot whilst I'm being completely diverted off talking about the party's main issues by somebody who just wants mm. to talk about scripture and not from a genuine place of curiosity. So that's my kind of but. But so where do you take people? I mean, when people do get angry or disappointed or surprised that, you know, you think things that about you agree what the Bible has to say on issues to do with sexuality and, and sex and so on. The important thing to, is always to be humble and to, and just to perhaps take them on a bit of a thought journey. And one thing I've found really does help is just to say to people, look, OK, you, you probably don't even believe in the God that I do. But let's assume there is a God just for the sake of argument for a thought experiment. In which case, let's just assume two things we can assume is that this God's perfect and almighty and that you and me are not. And on that basis, if the God that we're going to imagine think and do you can be sure that Richard Dawkins is right about that God they're a delusion you've invented them to suit yourself but if that God jars with you contradicts you and disturbs you there's a very good chance that you've met the right one the real one because that's exactly what you'd expect a real God to do and that at least allows people permission to think okay there may be more to this yeah, so, well, it's been in the news recently. There's a story of a Liberal Democrat uh, candidate, uh, David Campanale, who has uh, come under some pressure and considers that people within his local party are seeking to deselect him because of his Christian beliefs. Are you, are you comfortable uh, in a party where that happens? And, and reflecting on what you've just said, that the party couldn't cope uh, with you as a leader with the views and beliefs that you held. Is there a glass ceiling for Christians? Okay, well, so the first thing to say is that the people who are most supportive of me were the Liberal Democrats. It was quite interesting. And I'm not saying that there, wasn't, there weren't some people who were concerned about having uh, a Christian as the party leader, but other parties, including some who, who would at least nominally call themselves as supportive as I would expect them to be. But as I said earlier on, you know, we're Christians in the world, in secular places and uh, within the gracious as we deal with it the individual case you mentioned I, I know a lot about it but it's also going through process and it's not concluded so it would be right to talk about about that i personally have found arena that i'm in uh, i think the message for christians is that you will not find uh, outside the church i hope a place where any way easy to be a christian if you're engaging and that's a thing we're told to expect. And and, and we shouldn't complain about it. get a bit of grief 
even when I do, and I use the word liberal in a broad sense to include all people who kind of support Western liberal democracy, small l, small b. So I do think in the West, liberals do have a bit of a problem and a blind spot with uh, Christian faith uh, when it comes to uh, freedom um, and, and tolerance and all the rest of it. And when that does happen, I don't feel offended as a Christian. I hope that's the right thing to say, mm. because I know that we're told to expect this and God's big enough. But I do feel offended as a liberal, um, because I think that we uh, we need mm. to understand that tolerating people we like and agree with, that's easy, isn't it? It's the people we find hard to agree with that we need to do more to understand. Tim, I I know you need to go. Can I, can I just ask in as short as you feel is possible, what, what makes you hopeful about Christians engaging in politics and public life in the future? Well, I think two things, smaller than massive. The small thing that gives me hope is that I know what my experience is like every day. And I know that I'm able to, in some small way, meet the needs and support people who need someone on their side. And I guess people come into politics as Christians for all sorts of grand reasons, and many of them are really, really grand. For me, the penny has dropped over the years that the most important thing for a Christian to do in politics is to serve and to be a voice for the voiceless, and so to help people. Whether it be a housing problem, an immigrant, small way, person by person, that gives me great hope, being able to support people. But the massive thing is that we're children of a great God, and we may be going through the most appalling times. Oh, but it ends well ends well oh tim it's been such a pleasure to have you on i feel it is only fair that we let you leave five minutes later than you said you needed to leave <laughs> but right. thank yeah. you so much for your time that was such a fascinating conversation i wish that we'd had more time with him but we're very grateful for tim coming on i'm sure he's off to do lots of very important things now Danny, what, what we all, I, I feel really hopeful and really, I don't think I'm about to become a politician, but I feel really motivated to go out and live for Jesus in the public life. What are your reflections <laughs> at the end of that conversation? You mean he didn't motivate you to sign up and become a member of the Liberal Democrats? I, I, I got through, what, half of the questions that I wanted to talk to him about? So Tim Farron has obviously had quite a high profile journey as a Christian politician. He may not have received the invite to the Aussie Outback to be on I'm a Celebrity Getting Out of Here, but for Christians, when we think about what it looks like to, to be in the public eye and to serve as a politician, actually, his experience is often the one that Christians look to first. As someone who has been in positions of significant influence, but has also experienced uh, significant challenges as he sought to navigate that. So I think hearing Tim reflect on that, reflect on, on how he handled it, how uh, he want, he's still hopeful and optimistic and passionate about encouraging Christians to engage in public life. I think I'm hopeful about that. I think it requires Christians to have their eyes open, that politics is a place where as Christians we can serve our society and we can seek to live for Jesus and to see God's kingdom come but it's also a place with incredible challenges and that's and that's just true for Christians throughout all of life so I think 
I'm, I'm both really positive about wanting to encourage Christians to engage in politics and to think about politics more. But I think I also just want to encourage Christians mm. to, to do that with their eyes open, to, to know and to understand the world we live in and the pressures and the challenges that they are likely to face. Uh, but, but be prepared for that. So to be able to give answers to the questions that people will come with and be prepared that people are going to have significant disagreements with what you believe and what you stand for. But I think going into that with our eyes open means that we can both seek to pursue the possibilities and the opportunities but also be aware of the challenges. Well, we've had a brilliant couple of weeks with guests. If you haven't listened to last week's episode with Christian Solidarity Worldwide, we had a couple of guests from there. Go back and listen to that. We hope you enjoyed today's. Next week, we're going to have a somewhat normal episode again. We're going to let Peter and Alicia come back on. And in the meantime, between this week and next week, follow us on at EAUK News on Twitter and Evangelical Alliance on Instagram to get some of the insight and behind the scenes footage. Not quite, not quite jungle style, but it'll still be interesting. And we <laughs> and we will see you next week on Cross Section. As always, thank you to Chris Ringland. Got to remember to say that. See you next week. Cross Section conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hello, I'm Chris Ringland and I work as part of the Scotland team. Yes, I'm the same Chris that gets mentioned at the end of our episodes for putting the podcast together. Thanks for listening to Cross Section. We hope you really enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform, share the episode on social media and tell your friends and family so that they can enjoy it too. Thanks for listening and have a great week.